I'd like to ask you to take a moment and just think to yourself about what friendship means to you. Perhaps you could bring up in your mind friends that you had in the past or friends that you have now. Just take a moment and run through some people, run through some faces, run through some names. What kinds of thoughts or emotions come up in you? They may range from deep joy and gratitude to disappointment or betrayal or loneliness. I know I've been actually very fortunate to, all through my life, I can go all the way back to elementary school and even before that and think about friends that I've had people that have meant a lot to me, people that have been with me in times of stress, times of trouble, people with whom we've, I've just had wonderful times. It's the wide variety of experiences of friendship. And as you may have read in the chapter in the book Freeing Jesus, this whole idea of friendship with Jesus sometimes gets a bad rap. I remember my first early years in the Netherlands, I would listen to sermons in church, and there was quite often a very negative perspective given on having Jesus as your friend. Some leaders, pastors, church leaders are concerned that if you focus too much on Jesus being your friend or having a personal relationship with him, that that detracts from the otherness, from the holiness of God, that you become too much of a buddy with God and you miss the fact that he is, that he is holy. And Diana Butler Bass, and I find her last name interesting, especially from the English language perspective, because a bass is something you catch, but a bass is something you play. So I'm, I'm, I'm pronouncing it bass, and I assume that that's, that that's okay. Um, but she says, friendship with God is not a biblical side story. It is central to the promises and faithfulness of being called a people in which all are friends, companions, intimates, siblings, and beloved. So today we're going to be talking about Jesus as our friend. And before we go into it any further, I thought it might be helpful to just take a second and define a little bit more what, what we're talking about when we use the word friend here. Some of you may remember from your days in Uh, high school or university from your days of philosophy or from other general reading you've done, that uh, the ancient cultures, particularly the Greek culture, talked a lot about friendship, particularly Aristotle. He talked about three different kinds of friendship. There's what he called the friendship of utility. That is, two people need to work together to get something done, like a pitcher and a catcher. They need to work together to make sure 
that there's the right pitch thrown uh, that will uh, stymie the batter. You may be on a team of people, and so you have a kind of friendship that's focused on what they call utility. And then there's the friendship of pleasure, a mutual interest in something, something that you both enjoy. You might paint together, or you might um, go golfing together, or you might go boating together. All kinds of things that you enjoy together. That's a, the, what Aristotle calls the friendship of pleasure. So there's utility and then pleasure. And both of those are fine and good. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But the friendship that we're, I think, focusing on today is what Aristotle called the friendship of virtue or the friendship of the good. This kind of friendship is based on a mutual appreciation of the virtues that the other person has and holds dear. So you're friends with each other because of each other. These are, these are deep friendships. They take a long time to build. They take trust to build. And they provide a mutual benefit. And this kind of friendship in the ancient cultures, particularly in the Greek and extending through Western cultures, has just been a very, very important part of something that each person should strive for in their life. You should strive, according to Aristotle and many others, to have this kind of friendship, the friendship of virtue, the friendship that... Um, that accepts each other not for what you can do for them, but just simply for who you are. And it's that kind of friendship, when we're talking about friendship with Jesus or friendship with God today, that we're talking about. Again, not to say that the other two are not good or not desirable or not valuable. I want to start off uh, by reading with you this morning from Genesis chapter 2. Um, the, from verses 18 through 25. And if you remember, uh, Diana refers to this part of the scriptures. And she says that we oftentimes, when we think about the creation story and the early story of Adam and Eve particularly, we tend to focus on what went wrong. And she wants us to place our focus on what was right before things went wrong because it's that right stuff that we're, that's, our, that's our goal that we're, tr that we're trying to get to. So Genesis 2, it should be on the screen. Otherwise, if you have a Bible, you can follow it or just listen. The Lord God said, after he had created everything, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought it to the man. And brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And Diana says this about uh, this passage. In the beginning, God walks with Adam and Eve in mutual delight. These friends share the same spirit, the breath of God, and a common vocation to tend and attend creation. God makes man from the dust of the ground, watered by a spring, and gives him everything, and gives him everything. But the man is not happy even when he has all of creation at hand. To keep boredom at bay, he names the animals, rather like an only child naming stuffed toys, a venture that winds up being deeply unsatisfying. It's hard to imagine feeling somehow incomplete when one has God's total attention and the entire animal kingdom as companions, but Adam must have been a uniquely needy guy. So God makes a partner for him, the woman Eve, whose name means life. When he sees her, Adam proclaims, Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, a pronouncement that may be the best description of friendship ever. Adam was incomplete without a partner, the one whose friendship finally gave him life. Thus, Adam and Eve became spouses. But this is always a story about more than an exclusive friendship of two. In Genesis, a sacred circle of friends forms within the circle of creation in the delight of uncomplicated trust. The first act in biblical history is oneness of three Mutual vulnerability with no shame. Kindred souls, playmates, friends, man, woman, God. And then going through the scriptures, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, there are these two uh, great people who are friends of God. Thus, we'll read from Exodus thirty-three eleven. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And remember, Moses is like the great prophet hero of the Jewish people. And the same thing is said about Abraham in James 2.22. You see that faith was active along with his works, that's Abraham's works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God be something like us calling George Washington a friend of God, the father of our people, the father of our country, the father of who we are, the greatest. And James looks back and says, there's one thing that Abraham certainly was, a friend of God. And then Jesus in John 15, a passage that I'm sure you know, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. There's this this intimacy between Jesus and us, Jesus and his disciples. No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. And then from Luke 7, Jesus is uh, complaining a little bit to the Pharisees. He says to them, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So even Jesus, in his life on earth, when he walked around and when he, when he interacted with people, his enemies called him a friend, and not a friend of the good people, <laughs> He was a friend of the, what they considered to be the sinners, the tax collectors, the people with whom you really should not share a table, let alone your life. So Jesus, says Bass, brings us to the very heart of God and then reveals that God's heart longs for friendship. His people, his followers, his disciples including us, are more than servants to God. God was their friend, and they were friends of God. Servanthood, though admirable, is the lesser thing. Friendship, the knowing, loving, free, joyful, giving to one another, is the passionate desire of God. God's passionate desire is that we know him, that he knows us, that we love him, that he loves us, that it's free, that it's joyful, and that it's passionate. This friendship of virtue. I'm sure you're aware, being people who are involved in society, that Uh, friendship in our Western and I think particularly in our American society is not very easy. The uh, research, at least as far as I could find it, is a little bit mixed. There is some research that shows that Americans report, especially over the last decade or two, having far less friendships than they used to have. Close to half of Americans report to having only three friends or fewer. One-third of Americans report having between like four and nine friends. And 13% of Americans say they have ten or more close friends. But that's equal to the amount of Americans, about 12%, who say they have no friends at all. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag, and when people look back at the last year and a half or so, I think that people can see two movements. One is people isolating a little bit and having more trouble finding friendships, and other people who've been able to find and make new friendships in different ways. But I think it's fair to say, this is my own humble opinion, that friendships for most of us are a struggle.
It is not easy, especially if you're trying to make new friends. And now I'm speaking particularly of, what, of the friends of virtue of Aristotle. This is not particularly easy for us. We don't do it naturally. The movement of our life tends to swirl us into isolation. And of course, expect me to say this, and I'm assuming it's generally true, the thing with screens haven't, hasn't really helped us particularly. But you know, especially if you lived for a while and have tried to maintain or make new friends, that it just is not easy. It's hard. And one of the thoughts that I've had this week, when I've thought about why it's so hard, is, is it perhaps because when we try to make friends, we're a little bit selfish. That is, we want to have a friend because we expect that that friend will do something for us. And that friendship and that relationship is based on that person doing us a service, providing us with something, helping us with something, adding something to our lives that we don't have. In other words, the focus is ourselves. C.S. Lewis has, maybe many of you are familiar with this, a wonderful book called um, The Four Loves. And in it he talks about friendship. And here's a quote from him on friendship. A friend will, to be sure, prove himself to be also an ally when alliance becomes necessary. Will lend or give when we are need. Nurse us in sickness. Stand up for us among our enemies. Do what he can for our widows and orphans. In other words, there's a friend that will actually really help us when we need it. But, Lewis says, such good offices are not the stuff of friendship with a capital F, and here he means the friendship of virtue. The mark of perfect friendship is not that help will be given when the pinch comes. Of course it will. But that being given, it makes no difference at all. It was a distraction. It was an anomaly. It was a horrible waste of the time, always too short, that we had together. Because friendship, true friendship for Lewis, is not rooted in what we do for each other, how we help each other. It's rooted in the meeting of two people who love each other and walk together through whatever life has to offer us who meet each other on the deep soul level with no conditions or preconditions. How many of our friendships are conditional, are based on what the other can do for me? And then I ask myself this question, how is that concept of relating to friends and we relate to other people in this way obviously also related or rooted in our view of God and how he relates to us let me ask this question 
What is the primary view of God that you were taught? And the primary view of God that you have now? And I suspect that for most of us, we view God almost in the first place or very high on the list as a judge. God is the maker that you will meet when your life ends, before whose throne you will stand to give account. And you will have to tell him what you did and what you didn't do it done, and he will know anyway, and he will pass judgment on that. Isn't that such a prevalent image among us? It's the image of a courtroom. We use in theology this term justification, and that's courtroom language. A rule or a law has been broken. Therefore, something is owed a fine or a punishment or retribution. And what is owed must be paid. So I stand before the judge, and the judge says you're guilty, and now you have to pay this. And then the question is, in terms of God, how can I, how can I, I can't pay, so now what do I do? Am I going to always be guilty? And then we say, well, there is something you can do to get rid of that guilt. And that doing, that thing that you do, is depending on your tradition, faith, faith alone. You just believe in Jesus. That's all you have to do. And when you do that, you go free out of the courtroom. Or it's works. You have to do so many good things. And as soon as you do these so many good things, you get free out of the courtroom. Or it's some combination of faith and works. And since the Reformation, the whole one of the huge fundamental at the heart of everything discussions about how we relate to God is, is it faith or is it works or is it both? And how do they relate to one another? And there are books and books and books and books and books. And lectures and lectures and lectures. Rooted in this fundamental image of God as a judge. And now let me deconstruct a little bit. God's primary relationship with you is not conditional. His primary face towards you is not that of a judge. That image sits so deep even in me today that I struggle and struggle and struggle to pull away from it. It's not that God isn't a judge. But that is not his primary face. Because if his primary face to you is a judge, you will never have him as your friend. You cannot make friends with the judge. It, you can't. It can't happen. What is God's primary face toward you? Well, you remember the story of the prodigal son. The father... The one son who took half of his inheritance and went out and spent it. And the other son who dutifully did what he was supposed to do, but inside his heart was cold. He wasn't doing it out of love, and he certainly wasn't out doing it out of joy. 
And the father goes to both of those sons. And what does the father say to both of those sons, the, the both errant sons, just in different ways? I love you. Some of you are familiar with Henry Nouwen. I've, I've mentioned him off and on through the years, a Dutch uh, theologian and philosopher. Actually, this week, 25 years ago, he passed away in Amsterdam or in the Netherlands. He wrote this wonderful book called um, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and here are two quotes from that book. The Father, God, wants to say more than with his touch than with his voice good things of his children. He has no desire to punish them. They have already been punished excessively by their own inner or outward waywardness. The Father wants simply to let them know that the love they have searched for in such distorted ways has been, is, and always will be there for them. Are you catching that? The love of the Father, which is the foundation of every kind of love and friendship that there is, always has been, always is, and always will be there for you. The Father wants to say, more with his hands than with his mouth, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. He is the shepherd, feeding his flock, gathering lambs in his arms, holding them against his breath. And then listen to this. The farther I ran I run the further I run away from the place where God dwells the less I'm able to hear the voice that calls me the beloved and the less I hear that voice the more entangled I become in the manipulations and power games of the world the farther I run away from God who calls me beloved always has, always does, and always will, the less I'm able to hear that voice. And the voice that I hear is the voice of manipulation and power games of the world. And the more I'm listening to the manipulations and power games of the world, the more difficult it is for me to be in real relationship because I take on this power game and manipulation of the world, and that's, how I, that's the lens through which I, 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 I see everything and see everyone. And that moves me away from friendship as virtue into friendship as utility. And it moves me away from interest for the other and moves me deeper and deeper into the selfishness. You are there for me. So what I want to say this morning, just, just hang on this slide, Christopher, if you would, please. Just what I want to say this morning is your ability to make friends, real friends, the friends of virtue, is, I believe, deeply, reluted, deeply rooted in who, how you see yourself. Are you fundamentally beloved? Does God call you his friend? And the more you understand that, the more you move away from this God as a judge, as the center. Not that, again, not that he isn't a judge, but as the center. 
and see God as, as the friend who loves you as you are. Who loves you because He made you. And who is meeting you at the fundamental foundations of who you are as a person and interacting with you in all kinds of ways and changing what needs to be changed and affirming what's to be affirmed and walking through life together in the same way that he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Unless you understand that, it's going to be really hard to make friends. And the more you understand that, the more Uh, open you will be to entering into relationship with others and giving yourself to others. And Diana makes, I think, a wonderful point toward the end of her chapter that friendship is never just for friends. And And Lewis is making this point too. Friendship is never just about so that I can have a friend. Friendship is always for the good of the world. Friends work together to make a better world. And you can move on now to the next slide, Christopher. Thank you. Friends work together to make a better world. And you remember in the chapter that Diana talked about this story that I don't remember how long ago it was about Connor and Christian. Connor, the little boy who was afraid to come into school, who had been for the early years of his life nonverbal. And he's standing at the, at, at the door of the elementary school, scared to death to go in, and Christian comes over and takes his hand and walks him into the school. And Diana says, Jesus offers and extends a hand to us that guides us into a new reality. Here, friendship itself is the embodiment of a more just and loving world. Friendship itself is the embodiment of a more just and loving world. And so as we conclude, I'd like to ask you two questions just to take with you and think about. The first is, what is your basic image of God? The first thing that pops in your head. The first feeling. When you're caught by surprise. When you don't have, when you don't have time to, to, to make it look pretty. And is it the God who calls you beloved? The God who fundamentally is your friend. Not because of anything that you've done. But just because he loves you. And the second question is, what does your life of friendship look like? We are not designed to go through this life alone. We simply are not. Right from the very beginning, what we read in Genesis chapter 2, you are not designed, it's not even good for you to go through life alone. And again, I know making friendships is hard. It's work. It's much easier to stay in my own little circle. In my own life. But you will miss. 
understanding how much God loves you. And you will miss having an opportunity to mean something for the world if you decide to not make the effort to make friends of virtue rooted in God's love and friendship for you. Amen.